Thank you, James. Oh, thank you. You know, God is amazing. Um, just amazing. I can't think of a better setup for everything we're going to talk about today. Um, and this wasn't planned. And so as we go through this, you'll see everything that Mike just walked us through fits right into everything that we're going to talk about today. Truly amazing. So if you've been with us uh, for the start of the year, since the start of the year, you know we're in this series called Beginnings. And this series is one, in the first one, in a longer series throughout the course of the year that we're going to be going through based on the book Core 52 by Mark Moore. The focuses on 52 core verses and themes that give us an overarching big picture view of the narrative of the Bible. In the first week, Andy talked us through creation and God's design. And last week, we talked through identity and what it means to be created in God's image, to be like God, but not God. So up until this point, we've answered some key questions like, how did we get here and why are we here? And we learned about God's heart and his design and his intent for our lives. But then something happens. Something went wrong. Okay, the wheels fall off. And something happens that alters the course of humanity forever. Triggering what would become everything wrong with the world, but also triggering what would be the greatest rescue operation ever known. So we're going to be stepping into Genesis 3. We're going to be focusing specifically on verses 1 through 15. And we have a lot to get through, so I'm going to read the passage in entirety, so bear with me, and then we'll go back through and unpack it. In those verses, we discuss what we know as the fall, the fall of man. And we gain tremendous insight into the origin, the nature, the consequences, and ultimately the deliverance from sin and temptation. Some context first. In terms of what led us to this point, in chapters 1 and 2, a few few things uh, happened that kind of set up where we're headed. So God created everything in six days. On the seventh, he rested. On the sixth day, he created man in Adam. And he took Adam and placed him in the garden and said, all the trees in the garden you can eat from, except for one. You cannot eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, you will certainly die. At that point, after that, God created Eve because he determined that it was not good for man to be alone. And thus the oneness of marriage was created. And they were naked at the time and felt no shame. And here's where we pick up in chapter 3. So we'll read through this together. These are the words of the true and living God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you shouldn't touch it or you'll certainly die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot in there. We're going to go through it and unpack it under a few points here. The first point, the seduction of sin is subtle. There's subtlety in there, all the way back at the origin. So we go back to verse 1. Now the serpent, who's the serpent? Go back to Sunday school. Satan, the devil, absolutely, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So just the creature of the serpent is more crafty. I get it, they're, they're gross. Snakes are gross. There might be some people in here who like snakes. All I can say is you need to repent. But they're more crafty as a creature, so it's not a wonder that Satan would embody a creature like this. And he said to the woman, he goes after the woman specifically, attacking the more vulnerable of the two. Why do I say that? Why more vulnerable? Well, if we go back to what led us to this point, the sequence of events, God created Adam, gave the command to Adam, and then created Eve. So she, we can deduce that she got the information from from Adam, saying this is what we were told, this is... These are the rules we have to play by. Then what does Satan do? Challenges what she may know. Did God actually say that? Seeding doubt, challenging her, wondering, is is that really what he said? You know, because she may have gotten it secondhand. Then he goes further. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now he's mixing words. That's not what the command was. It was the one tree. And he knows that. He says, did God really say you can't eat of any of these trees? Causing confusion. And she said to the serpent, we can eat of the, tru- uh, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but you can't eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open. So now he ups it a little bit more, even further. Okay, these are half-truths that the enemy uses. He's not lying. We know that because we know what happens. When they ate the fruit, they didn't drop dead in that moment, but they ushered death into the world that would come for everyone later. And yes, their eyes would be opened, but not in the way that they thought or that he positioned it. These half-truths that are about instant gratification now, but it hides the long-term consequences later. And he's calling God a liar in this moment. Certainly you're not going to die. Don't trust that. Is a bad God hiding a good thing, trying to twist us up. And then lands the final um, blow of really enticing us. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan uses all of this subtlety to build up to tempting our innermost desire, which is to be like God. James 1, 14 through 15, he speaks of this inner desire that we're born with because of the fall and the sequence of events that happens when we sin. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
this chain of events. So we already have this desire, and the tempter comes and scratches at this desire. It says, go ahead and sin, and it gives birth to that chain of events that ultimately leads to death and destruction. But it starts with our own desire. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting. You're not going to tempt me with beets, ever. You're just not going to, because I don't like them. It doesn't work that way. A couple years ago, when we first started going here, I think it was our second time maybe attending, and uh, we came in, and my son Jack, we sent him downstairs to be with the other kids, and we went through service, and we leave, and we're walking through uh, the parking lot to the car, and I look down, and he has something in his hand. I said, what do you got there, buddy? And he says, oh, it's a graham cracker. I'll never forget, it was shaped like a fish. And I said, okay. He said, it was from the lesson. Okay, Jack, tell me more. What, what was the lesson? He says, well, it was about temptation, and they gave us this graham cracker, and we had to sit there through the whole lesson and see who could go through the entire lesson without eating. But it didn't work. I don't like these. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. There has to be that desire there first, and that's how we are tempted. Next point, the subtlety of sin is significant. This gets into the inner workings. We start to get insight into the schemes of the devil, the strategy, if you will. And we see that in verse 6 in Genesis 3. And this is the core verse for this week in Mark Moore's book, if you're following along, reading through the book. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. So here we have the fall, the first disobedience, the first entrance of sin into the world. That cataclysmic event that would lead to disease, wickedness, weather events, all the bad things, the terror that Mike talked about that is in this world started at this moment. But in the verse prior, um, in this verse, just before that point, we start to get some insight into the strategy that got to that. There's three things. She saw that it was good for food. It was uh, a delight to the eyes. And then it was desired to make one wise. And this gives insight into the threefold strategy of the enemy. The desire of the flesh is the first one. As there was uh, a need for food. So there's just this kind of primal need that we have, these things that we lust after. The desires of the eyes, things we see and we want to possess them. And ultimately the pride of life, our need in the fall to elevate our status and exalt ourselves. These three things are a pattern that the enemy uses to lure us into temptation. 1 John 2:15 through 16 spells this out explicitly. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This pattern was deployed even when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Luke 4. Verse 3, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. It says prior that Jesus was hungry because he hadn't eaten that day. And so he tempts him. He needs to eat, tempts that part of him. In verse 6, he says, uh, he takes him up to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And says, all of this I will give to you, all of their authority and splendor, if you just bow to me. Catering to the desires of the eyes. Look at all of this. Don't you want it? And tries to deceive Jesus that way and tempt him. 
And then in verse 9, if you are truly the son of God, he takes him up to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written that you will be rescued. Everyone will see that you are the son of God. Reveal yourself. You know, bathe in that glory. Don't you want that? And unlike Eve, Jesus rebukes the enemy and says, no, absolutely not. It's those three things the flesh, the eyes, and ultimately the pride of life. So if we know this strategy, if we know that these things are used against us, we can defend against it. And we have to defend against it because of the next point. The significance of sin is serious. The seriousness of sin cannot be overstated. Back to Genesis 3. Then their eyes were opened, verse 7. Their eyes were opened. Again, that half-truth. They were opened, but what were they opened to? Their own sin. They saw that they were naked and exposed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, trying to cover their own shame. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. The original intent, God's design of our relationship, physically together at that time, walking in the garden. And they hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. A physical separation. Where before there was fellowship, now they were hiding, separating themselves from God because of their exposure. But the Lord God called and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This exposure, this nakedness now, because of what had happened, introduced fear into the relationship of God and man. What was once unity was now pulled apart. And God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded to you? Sin is so serious because it separates us from God. It did all the way back in the garden, cosmically separating God from man. And the nature of sin, when we are tempted and we lose the battle, we're separated from God in those moments. Romans 1.28, as a result of the fall, we see all of this sin now in full maturation. All throughout history, the Old Testament, the New Testament, sin after sin after sin. And certainly as we look around us in the world, we see no shortage of sin. It is a plague on all of humanity. Toxic, completely counter to God. And Paul elaborates in Romans 1.28 on the nature of this sin and just a short list of some of the sin that we can all be capable of. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. That's always my favorite. Disobedient to their parents. Kids, listen up. Trumbles. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now you might see that list and look at it and say, I don't do those things. I don't do all of those things. Well, I try not to do those things or I don't do them all the time. I haven't in a while, or I think I can stop. But we can't. Not on our own. Because of the fall and what we are all capable of. The next point. This seriousness of sin lies in its strength. Its ability to entice us. Its ability to grab a hold of us and not let go. Back to Genesis three, twelve and 13. Sin leads to more sin, and we see it here. The man said, well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, 
and I ate it. So now instead of taking accountability when God says, what have you done? Have you taken of the fruit that I told you not to take? He says, well, no, it was the woman being unkind, throwing his wife under the bus. And let's add blasphemy to it. Well, the woman, but not really the woman, you gave her to me. The woman that you gave me caused me to sin instead of taking accountability. Because he disobeyed the direct order. He had direct communion with the Father. Knew exactly what he wasn't supposed to do and did it anyway. This lack of accountability comes from pride. This deep pride that we have because of the fall. Where we want to blame everybody else. We want to point fingers because we need to preserve our status at minimum and elevate it if we can. And this pride dwells deep within us fighting to stay alive. In the book, Core 52, if, you, if you're reading along, at the end of each chapter, there's a checklist of things. Read these scriptures and pray about this. And there's some extra credit in this week's, which is to look at the works of John Owen. John Owen was a 17th century uh, British theologian and church leader. And I highly recommend taking a look. It's not light reading, just be warned. A lot of the old stuff isn't. Um, but it's the most comprehensive work on the power uh, of sin that I've ever read short of the Bible. I just pulled in one quote here. Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. Hence is that summary description of the whole work and effect of this law of sin in Genesis 6-5. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. Strong words. Okay, The sin wasn't placed uh, into us from outside circumstances. It's already there dwelling within, waiting to be tempted. And that is the strength. Strong words, every imagination, only evil continually. Our propensity for evil cannot be overstated, even as believers. In Romans seven fifteen through 20, Paul perplexingly illustrates the Christians wrestle with sin. Now, this is a bit of a tongue twister, so I'm going to try to get through it. Bear with me here. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So in all of that confusion is just this idea that we want to do good. As believers, we know and we have the power, but in our own will, we don't have the ability to do the right thing. And our propensity for evil is so significant. If Paul, a spiritual titan, can't overcome the power of sin, what hope do we have? I know what you're thinking at this point. James is a downer. That's fine. You can send your complaints to Andy at kccwired.com. But yes, this is dark stuff. It's dark and it's serious. And if left to our own devices, we would certainly be doomed. But that's not the end. That is not the end of the story. That is not the end of God's story. It is not the end of our story. And it's not the end of this story all the way back in the garden. There is hope. Next point. The stronghold of sin is overcome by the Savior. Amen. Last two verses here. 
Hope was present in the garden, embedded in the curse. Hope was there. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That was a curse on the creature of the serpent. Now a curse on Satan himself. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity is this word, it's like natural opposition. Okay, just that that these two things are not going to get along. He says, I will put that between you and the woman, her offspring, mankind, and your offspring, sin, plural. So that that happened. Generally speaking, even amongst non-believers, evil's bad, generally speaking. And the devil as a symbol is a villain. So there is this natural animosity that exists between good and evil. And so that all came true. And God could have ended it there and says, you guys aren't going to get along. And that's going to be a battle forever. But that wouldn't undo what Satan achieved in the garden. So he takes it a step further. And he gets specific about Eve's offspring. He, singular, he will crush your head, a defeating blow, and you shall bruise his heel. One man, total defeat, but enduring pain along the way. Who are we talking about? Jesus. Amen. This is the gospel foretold in the garden at the same moment, right after the fall, immediately after that rescue mission was set in motion. It's amazing. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil. That's a stronghold when we wrestle with ongoing, continuous sin. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The very reason, and it was existing all the way back in the garden, foretold by God in the curse against Satan. The fall was a battle between God and the devil. The devil thought he won. He said, I've, I've got him. Last week, Andy mentioned that we are the crowning achievement. And the devil said, I made them fall. I swept the leg. I got them. I have won. And God said, nope. I have a plan. And you're in big, big trouble. John 19.30, it's not up here as a late ad. When Jesus is on the cross, about to bow his head and give up his spirit, he says his last words. It is is finished. Amen. Total victory, as foretold in the garden, that crushing blow achieved in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we share in that victory. Paul, again, in Romans eight thirty seven, talking about, can we be separated from God? He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We were separated immediately at the time of the fall. That's what was ushered in. But immediately reconciled back. That plan put in motion, overcome with Christ's finished work on the cross. I leave you with this. The seriousness of sin leads to the salvation of the Savior. 
It did all the way back in the garden at the fall. It was so serious that God had to set in motion this master plan. And it's the same thing now. We still wrestle with sin on this side of eternity. But that sin leads us to salvation through Christ and overcoming that sin. Both cosmic events from the fall are at work and at war today around us and within us. The lure, the nature, the effects and consequences of sin and the redeeming escape and transformative power of the gospel within us. So what do we do? We still have to wrestle with sin. Even though it's been overcome cosmically and Satan has been defeated, we don't just rest. We have to fight daily, each and every day. Sin doesn't rest. We need to take seriously the danger and power of sin in our lives. We don't want to dwell there. It's another tactic of the enemy to make us see our sin so much so that we feel shame, guilt, unworthy to approach the throne of glory. But we are worthy through Christ. But we want to acknowledge it to the point that it points us back to Christ, where we can declare victory. In general, cosmically, but also over whatever that thing is that we're wrestling with at that time. A final quote from John Owen. Whoever does not oppose sin is at peace with it. Sin doesn't stop. And so if we're not warring with it each and every day, it's winning. Don't be at peace with it. I implore you, take it seriously. Take it to Christ. He already defeated Satan cosmically. And he can help us defeat him practically each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful, Lord, for your plan, for your love, for your son, this rescue mission that you set forth all the way back in the garden, that you loved us so much, Lord, that you sent your son to, to die the death that we deserve, Lord. Just so thankful for that truth, to reconcile us back to you, Lord. And I am so thankful for your word, that we can dig into it, that in it is everything that we need to continue to fight against the enemy and live in a state of declared victory, Lord. I'm so thankful for everybody that is here today, that just showing up today is an act of war against the enemy. And I'm so thankful. I just pray that you protect us all as we go out into the wilderness where the real testing happens so that we can continue to defeat the enemy every day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.